The following message was preached at Redeemer Community Church. For more information about Redeemer, visit us online at www.redeemernc.org. Today's scripture reading comes from 2 Corinthians 2, 14-17. But thanks be to God, who always leads us in Christ's triumphal procession, and through us spreads the aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place, For to God, we are the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To some, we are the aroma of death leading to death, but to others, an aroma of life leading to life. Who is adequate for these things? For we do not market the word of God for profit like so many. On the contrary, we speak with sincerity in Christ as from God and before God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thanks, Lisa. Before we jump into our sermon this morning, let me just have you put some on your calendar. So in just two weeks from now, Saturday, February 18th, we are having a special foundation dedication to the building. So it's going to be just a great time together of thanking the Lord for what he's doing, but also we want to sort of symbolically remind ourselves and others, Brad, I think I'm ringing here. Um, I want to remind ourselves and others about that we're a church that's built not upon our sort of opinions, a church that's built upon our abilities, but we're a church built upon the foundation of God's word and the gospel. So we're going to meet on the land at 10 a.m. Saturday the 18th, and we're going, to, we're going to put things, write some scripture verses on stones, and we're going to toss them into the area where the foundation will be poured just a few weeks from then. And so make sure you, you put it on your calendar. We're going to send out more details in the next two weeks, but it's really just going to be a wonderful time celebrating, thanking God, uh, dedicating this space for his use and symbolically reminding ourselves of, of what exactly we're built on as a church. So make sure you're uh, there for that. A couple of weeks ago, we met together as a church staff to share our goals for 2023. Adam makes us do this. So he says we have to write goals, and then we share them with each other, and then throughout the year we check in and see how we're doing. So apparently my first goal for 2023 should have been to write goals for 2023, because... The rest of the staff showed up with goals, and I, I hadn't done my homework. So we sat there, and um, everyone kept, all the staff members kept sharing their goals, and while they were sharing their goals, I was staring at my blank piece of paper. I came up with one goal to share when it was my turn, so my goal was to encourage all the staff members to complete their goals. And I don't mean to say, I'm killing it. I've been very encouraging, and they're getting a lot of things done, so it's, it's been great. You know, we think about goals, we're told our goals are supposed to be specific, measurable, and achievable, right? And why do we need specific, measurable, and achievable goals? Because we need to be able to figure out if we've met them, right? If, if you don't do them right, don't write them right, you don't know if you've ever accomplished them. And why do we need to determine if we've met our goals? Because that's how we know if we're successful, right? We determine success or failure based upon whether we've accomplished our goals, So our goal was to win the conference championship, and we did, so we've had a successful season. Our goal was to increase revenue by 12%, and it was up 14%. It's been a successful year. Our goal was to make the honor roll, and we did, so it was a a successful semester. How do we know if a church has been successful? How do we know if our ministry to other people is a success? 
Like, so for us as a church, for us as Christians, what defines success? Now, if you've been with us so far in our study of 2 Corinthians, you probably know the answer. It's the cross. The cross defines ministry success. Because this letter opened up talking about affliction, and, and it was telling us if we, if we have a right view of the cross, it'll allow us to see the good that comes out of affliction. And then it moved on to criticism, and unfair criticism, how the cross shapes our response when someone criticizes us, particularly if it's unfair. And so now we come to this issue of success, and we're going to see how the cross shapes our view of success. And the cross should shape our view of success. One of the goals of this letter is to remind us that we've been called out of the world, and therefore the way we view the world is different than the world views the world. And so the way we view success will be different than what the culture tells us is successful. And so as we, as we go to this text this morning, I, we need to go with this understanding that all of us need correcting when it comes to our view of success. I need this. You need this. Together, we need this. And so this morning's passage, we're going to see two examples of successful ministry, and that leads into a a little more of a discussion about what what exactly ministry success is. So let's start with the examples of successful ministry. Chapter 1 of this letter closed with some personal reflections by the Apostle Paul. He's the human writer of this letter, but we know from the first verses that he was inspired by the Spirit of God to write this. And so this letter is not a man writing to just a church. It's God writing to his people, writing to us. And so in in this letter, Paul shares why his plans had changed. If you remember from last week in verses 1 through 4, he details what exactly happened that, that led him to change when he visited this church. And that's, that explanation leads into this first example of successful ministry in verses 5 through 11. I call this the case of a repentant brother. The case of a repentant brother. Now, there's a lot of conflict in the letters to First and Second Corinthians. There's conflict that, that, that come from a lot of directions. Some of it is the conflict about how, how to receive the message from God through Paul. But, but some of it revolved around a particular man in the church who, who was confronted over his sin, and then he was removed from the church because he failed to repent, and now here he is wanting to reconcile back to the church, having come to them in repentance. We don't know all of the details or the specifics, but we read about it in verse 5. He says, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused pain not so much to me, but to some degree, not to exaggerate, to all of you. The punishment by the majority is sufficient for that person. So this man, whomever he was, has sinned and his sinful actions have in some way brought pain to the entire church. Now many people, including myself, think this man is actually a man that was referred to in the first letter to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We're not going to turn there, but it'd be good for you to go and actually read that chapter this week. But in that chapter, the Apostle Paul talks about a man in the church who is living in a in an immoral relationship with his stepmom. So this is clearly blatantly wrong. It's not hidden. Everyone's aware of it. And Paul, when he writes, says, listen, even someone who's not a Christian would look at that relationship and say, well, that's wrong. And yet here you are as a church, you're not condemning his actions. You're actually somewhat celebrating your acceptance of him as being tolerant or enlightened. And so he says, what you need to do is right now, you need to remove that person to 
excommunicate him, remove him from the communion of the church. That's what he means in verse 6 when he says, this punishment by the majority is sufficient. Like together as a church, you need to recognize this is what we must do. Because his sin is like cancer spreading throughout the church and it must be surgically removed. Well, it appears that the church struggled to obey this command to practice what we call church discipline on this brother who's living in blatant, unrepentant sin. This is probably the reason that Paul made that painful visit that he refers to in verse 1 and and follows up with the severe letter in verse 4 because the church here is unwilling to take the difficult, painful, but necessary step of dealing with this man's sin. And therefore, what they're doing by their failure to act is they're tacitly condoning what he's doing. In fact, they're actually, by their inaction, demonstrating that Jesus Christ must approve of this man's sinful lifestyle. A failure to practice church discipline on an unrepentant brother or sister is a failure to take sin seriously. Okay, but the cross, which is how we see everything, right? demands that we take sin seriously because God takes sin seriously. In fact, God takes sin so seriously that he says the only remedy for your sin is the death of a perfect unblemished sacrifice, his son, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So if we don't take sin seriously, then we're implying that God overreacted to sin by sending his son in our place to bear our guilt. So successful ministry in light of the cross takes sin seriously. Okay. But the world around us will tell us that we're never going to grow if we take sin seriously. Being honest about sin, talking about it directly, will be labeled legalistic, cruel. Maybe we'll be called radical fundamentalists. Look at those radicals. We'll be painted as being more concerned with control than compassion. Maybe we'll even be compared to Islamic clerics who demand women be stoned if they remove their head covering. See, but the cross teaches that the most loving thing we can possibly do is to take sin seriously because sin is serious. Is it cruel for a doctor to take cancer seriously? Is it unloving? For an engineer to condemn a decaying bridge, is it mean for the Forest Service to warn people about forest fires? Where there is real danger, the most loving thing we can do is to warn someone, even if they don't want to listen, even if they can't see it themselves. So when the church finally acted to remove this man from the congregation, they were acting in love. They were affirming their love for him by acting on his behalf, even though he couldn't see it. So the cross teaches us to take sin seriously. But it also teaches us to take forgiveness seriously. So this church was slow to deal with this sin, and now it's slow to offer forgiveness. Because apparently, the church's action had its intended effect. It it brought this man to his senses. This is what church discipline we pray does, is that here's this man who's removed from the church and all of a sudden he's like, everyone I know and everyone I love has just told me they don't think I'm a Christian because of what I'm doing. What am I doing? And this is what happens. So this man repents, he's following Jesus again, and now the church is sort of keeping at arm's length and they're slow to receive him back. 
And look at the instruction in verse 7. As a result, you should instead forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, he may be overwhelmed by excessive grief. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. Do you realize the purpose of the cross wasn't just to deal with sin? Dealing with sin is a waypoint. The final destination is to be restored with God. Like sin had to be dealt with so that we could enjoy forgiveness and restoration. The goal of church discipline is always to restore a sinning brother or sister to fellowship with God and his people. So when Jesus first lays out church discipline, he does this in Matthew 18, he says, and he's very clear about this, that it ends the moment a brother or sister repent. And he says, when that happens, when they repent of their sin, you have gained your brother. Those are Jesus' words. You have gained your brother. The relationship that you lost because of their sin is now restored because of their repentance. Every Redeemer 101, our membership class, I say the same phrase when I encourage people to attend, who are attending to join a church. I say, join a church so that you can be kicked out if you need to be. Because the most loving thing a church can do for you if you are trapped in sin, the most loving thing a church can do for you if you are blinded to your own foolishness, the most loving thing a church can do is if you're refusing to turn from the path that leads to destruction is to kick you out so that the action of removing you will help you see how serious your sin is so you'll repent and then be restored to fellowship. Now, depending upon the sin... It can be hard to offer forgiveness. Because when you're part of a church, you're part of a family, and the actions of one family member affect the whole family. So if you're cutting something with a saw, and the saw cuts across your fingers, the rest of your body feels it, right? And the rest of your body now has to adjust to what's happening here. It's not as if your brain looks down and says, well, that's no big deal, it's just the hand. Thankfully, I'm okay. Like If you're a Christian, your sinful actions, your sinful decisions, they, they impact more than yourself. There's no such thing as a, as a sin that only affects you. Your choices, your sinful choices affect the entire church. And that's why sometimes it can be difficult to forgive. But look what God says. He commands us, we forgive those who sin against us and we restore those who repent. Verse 9, I wrote for this purpose to test your character to see if you are obedient in everything. What specifically? Well, anyone you forgive, I do too. For what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, is for your benefit in the presence of Christ, so that we may not be taken advantage of by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. See, Satan loves when a church makes one of two errors. So he loves when a church looks at someone sinning and they say, hey, Sin is no big deal. But he also loves when a church looks at someone who has turned from their sin and says, well, that sin is such a big deal that there's no hope for you. So if we say either one of these things, sin isn't a big deal, or that sin is so, so much of a big deal that there's just no hope, we are falling into his schemes. We're either the mouse reaching for the cheese, thinking the trap is harmless, or the rat stuck in a maze with no way out. Either way, he's got us. 
See, both of these errors, sin is no big deal or it's such a big deal, forgiveness is impossible, both of those deny something fundamental about the cross of Jesus. They either deny the gravity of sin and need for God's justice, or they deny the sufficiency of Jesus' sacrifice and the depth of his grace. This week I asked my community group about church discipline. By that we mean, right, this whole process of how a church in obedience to Jesus removes a member who refuses to repent of their sin, all with this hope of restoring them to God and his people. And so I said, have you seen this in action? And the consensus was that apart from a few who'd been here when Redeemer has had to walk through this, that they hadn't seen it. Why is it that churches won't obey this clear and repeated instruction? Because it's not just, it starts with Jesus, but it's throughout the New Testament. This is prescribed and repeated in multiple places. Why is it? I think at least part of the answer is because it doesn't feel successful. I've been to a number of church conferences. None of them were called, was called Building a Dynamic Church Through Church Discipline. I've read a lot of books. Very few of them say this is the way to go. So, Our culture, including our broader church culture, judges church success primarily through the number of people who attend, right? So a really successful church is a church that has the most people there. And so removing someone for sin cuts against that. It feels less successful. So we stand here as a church, and we have to ask ourselves, will we as a church judge success by what the culture tells us is successful? Or will we judge it by the cross? Because the cross says, if you are to be successful, you must take sin and forgiveness seriously. So this is the first example of ministry success. Here's the second example. The case of a missing brother. Case of a missing brother. So Paul is continuing to explain why he changed his travel plans, something he addressed earlier in the chapter. But look at verse 12. When I came to Churaz to preach the gospel of Christ, even though the Lord opened a door for me, I had no rest in my spirit. Because I did not find my brother Titus. Instead, I said goodbye to them and left for Macedonia. See, the cross teaches us to value each person, not just large numbers. So here's Paul. And he says, I had this great ministry opportunity in front of me. And yet I was so concerned about the whereabouts of Titus, my brother in the faith, that I I had to go find him. Just like Jesus cares for one lost lamb... Paul cares for one missing brother. See, when Jesus died on the cross, he took on the sin of all people, but he took on my sin. Jesus died on the cross in Josh's place. He bore Josh's sin. The cross teaches us the value of each life. The greatness of the cross is not seen only in how God rescued humanity, but in how God rescued humans, individual people, made in his likeness. Brothers and sisters, we need to remember that bigger is not always better. If we ever sacrifice individuals because we want to attract a larger crowd, then we have forgotten the ministry of Jesus and the message of the cross. See, this is especially important for us right now because it seems that God is entrusting us with more people. So as more people attend and join Redeemer, will we still minister to them personally? Will they become a crowd we cater to or will, they, will we value them as people? People with warts and scars, people with struggles and burdens. 
I want you to know this is a conversation that we've been having as leaders. How will we continue to prioritize people as God brings more of them to Redeemer? Like we're, we're in a rapidly growing community and we're about to put up a building that is visible. It probably means more and more people from the community will come through the doors. How will we value individuals? How will we minister to people, not just a crowd? This is so important to what we do because God has called us to make disciples and disciples aren't like Ikea furniture. They don't just roll off an assembly line that all you need to do is a quick, somewhat quick, very painful assembly and they're good to go. All set, sort of uniform. Uh, Disciples are much more like the handcrafted Amish furniture that you discover deep in the countryside that took a few weeks or a few months not 15 minutes to produce. Disciples are handmade. They're not factory produced. And so that's why the ministry of the cross is a ministry to individuals that values people. Next Sunday, I won't be here. I'm going to be out in California. It's warmer there. That's not why. It's the benefit. So I was was heading out there initially because I was going to speak to some pastors at a conference, but that was on a Tuesday. And so I planned to be here next weekend and then fly out on Monday. But then uh, when I I realized this this was close to San Diego, I started thinking about Daniel. Daniel is one of our members who, who is stationed there in the Navy, and he's had a hard time getting connected to the church. And so I began thinking about visiting over the weekend so that Daniel, we that I could take him to church and help to get him connected to a, a good church that's right there. So I was thinking about this, and I talked with Adam, and I said, just ask him if, if he thought it was worth uh, the time, worth the effort, worth the cost of, of, of going out there and doing this. I wanted to know what he thought, and he, he said something very wise. He said this, he said, as a church, we want to do for one what we wish we could do for all. We want to do for one what we wish we could do for all. In other words, will we probably fly out to every member who moves to help them find a good church? No. But we will sometimes when it's needed. See, one author asked a great question. He said, can you imagine how much it would have meant to Titus that Paul was willing to change his travel plans to make sure that he was okay? This is the real care that flows from a deep commitment to loving one another as partners in gospel ministry. So the cross teaches us and it shapes our ministry together so that there is a deep affection for each other, deep affection for our brothers and sisters here, a deep affection that values individuals. We value them when they fall into sin. We value them when they turn in repentance. We value them when we're not sure what they're doing or how to help them. We take the well-being of each other very seriously. That's successful. Let's be honest. If you're putting some church trophies on the wall, these are not the stories you probably tell. But this is what success looks like. And this leads to Paul's explanation. What is successful ministry? Well, he explains our ministry, what it should look like with this powerful word picture. He says it's the fragrance of Christ. We are the fragrance of Christ. Verse 14, but thanks be to God who always leads us in Christ's triumphal procession and through us spreads the aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For to God we are the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. 
To some we are an aroma of death leading to death, but to others an aroma of life leading to life. So when a Roman general won a major victory, he was invited to march his army into the city with a victory parade. And so I need you to use your imaginations here for just a moment. So imagine you're lining the main roadway into the city as the victorious army passes by. What do you see? Right, so you probably see some officers on brilliant white horses. Some soldiers, they're, they're marching by you. They're raising their weapons in triumph and they're shouting with joy. There's prisoners somewhere in there with bound hands and lowered heads. There's wagons filled with treasures from a distant land. There's trumpeters playing music and the sound of drums keeping the rhythm. And then a very center is the, is the, is, there's the general, like the, the victorious commander. He's the focus of everyone's affection and applause. Like, can you just, can you picture it in your mind? What does it smell like? What is this parade? What does this victory march smell like? Well, you probably smell the aroma of crushed flowers because the crowd brought flowers with them as they watched and they threw flowers out. And as the soldiers and the animals walked over those flowers, it crushed them and there's some fragrance of flowers. Maybe you smell polish because the soldiers knew they were on going to be marching on a parade, so maybe the night before they took some polish out and they tried to clean their armor because they wanted everything to, to gleam in the sun. You probably smell wine and roasted meat because many people came offering soldiers wine as they passed, offering them roasted meat just as a thank you in gratitude for, for what they've done. You smell some incense because somewhere in this procession are priests who are swinging some brass bowls of incense. This is a thanks, an offering of thanks, they think, to the gods who gave them the victory. But intermingled, intermingled in those smells, you also smell the scent of wounded soldiers with limbs that are getting infected. You smell captives who are covered in the nastiness of battle and bodily fluids. Animals caked with sweat and mud. And the dead carried in carts to be buried. What smells the strongest? Is it the smell of life? Flowers and wine and meat and incense. Is it the smell of death? Injuries and captivity and loss of life. I think the smell that stands out to you depends upon your view of the general in the middle. Is this general on your side or more importantly, are you on his side? Because if it is, this smells like victory. And all of those, all of those sense of life and freedom are what you take from this person. But if you stand opposed to him, then it smells like death and defeat. See, the ministry of the cross, we're told, smells like life to those who follow Jesus and smells like death to those who reject him. Those who refuse to bow to Jesus as Lord and Savior, as King and Conqueror, they only smell death and disgrace. They look at this parade, they hear the news of Jesus, and they see the death of their pride. 
They see the death of their perceived plans, the future that they have prepared for themselves. They see the death of their dependence upon their own goodness. They see the death of their name and reputation. In fact, they look at Jesus and they see the mockery of Jesus on the cross and they say, I don't want to associate myself with someone who lost. But to the Christian, we see life. Life through death. Jesus conquered death by taking on humanity, accepting the judgment of our sin, entering death through death in order to defeat death itself. He rose from the dead, and so the cross is not primarily a symbol of death, but a symbol of life. For some, the offense of the cross turns the cross sideways into a fence holding them back. But to others, the cross becomes a bridge, which leads them across the chasm of sin to God himself. And all of it depends upon your response to Jesus. I know there are some who come each week who aren't Christians. And, and maybe you come and each week you're hearing this message and you just, you just don't get it. I don't mean by that you don't understand it. You're smart. You understand what we're saying. But it, honestly, it smells like death to you. No interest. Here's Why? Do you see it? This same message that smells like death can become the message of life to you. Because the message of our world is the message of the cross, which the death of Jesus leads to life. For those of us who do follow Jesus and share in his victory, We're told in verse 14, we become spreaders of the aroma of Christ in every place. And the way that we spread his aroma is by our very presence. Look at verse 15. We are the fragrance of Christ because we're united with Jesus through faith in him. We begin to smell like his victory. Brothers and sisters, we are to take the aroma of Christ's death and resurrection, his victory, march everywhere we go. If you've ever walked into a shopping mall, then you know you're very familiar with the scent of Cinnabon, right? That's not, that's not unintentional, right? You walk in those doors and like you're just hit with the smell of cinnamon rolls and it's beckoning you, come and feast, right? Cinnabon understands the power of that scent. So one of their strategies is they, they intentionally put stores near the mall doors. So when you open that door and step in, what's the first thing that hits you? Not all the sweaty bodies crammed inside this mall, right? It's the smell of cinnamon rolls. They also bake new cinnamon rolls every 30 minutes so that the scent just lingers in the air. They're, they're strategic in the way they spread the aroma. I was thinking about that this week and... I was wondering why we aren't more strategic in spreading the fragrance of Christ. Why is it that someone would spend all this time and effort spreading the smell of cinnamon rolls and yet we don't give a lot of thought to the smell of Christ and how to spread it? And here's the thing. It's not that we need to create some sort of marketing strategy. In fact, that's the point Paul makes in verse 17. He's like... we. We refuse anything that's underhanded or anything manipulative. Because some Cinnabon owners, I've read, they do this. They'll buy an intentionally underpowered hood for their oven so that instead of sucking the smell out, it just lingers more. And some, instead of baking new cinnamon rolls every 30 minutes, will just throw trays of cinnamon and brown sugar in the oven and just heat that up again. 
saying we don't, we don't have to do this because the aroma of Christ, it's not some strategy that we market. It's not some product. It says we know him. That's what it is. We spend time with him, then we enter places and his fragrance is on us. Where are you spreading the fragrance of Christ? I mean, I know the answer, right? We all know the answer. It should be, well, everywhere I go. But the truth is that we only smell like Christ if we've spent time with him. We only smell like him if, if we're growing in the knowledge of him. And that's not merely an intellectual thing. It's talking about a relationship. The knowledge of Christ causes his aroma to stick to us. So I sometimes joke with Carrie that the, her favorite clone for me is campfire. It's not an actual clone. It's when we go build a fire in the fire pit and we sit around it and I walk in the house and I smell like wood smoke. And she, she smells it. She's like, ooh, that smells good. I don't know what it's covering. I'm not sure why she's so excited about that. But like, like that's, the, that's the scent. That, and how do I get it? Like I don't buy a spray. Campfire. You sit around a fire. And the longer you sit there, the more this fragrance, aroma lingers with you. And that's what it's saying here. Like we are with Christ. And the more we're with Christ, the more his fragrance lingers. It sticks to us. So when we enter places, we enter smelling like him. Now, for us as a church, I think one of the implications of this is that personal presence is important. The Apostle Paul has a tendency to describe ministry in very tactile ways, and I, don't, I think that's intentional. You see, you can't smell the aroma of Jesus through a video screen. So, friends, at Redeemer, we value physical presence. The preacher is always with the people in the room. The people are always with the other people. Video is a middleman that makes life two-dimensional. And there are, I know there are circumstances like sickness and distance where it can be very helpful. Understand it's not the real thing. Your phone does not come equipped with scratch and sniff. You cannot experience the aroma of Christ virtually. You've got to be with people. And you see this in the Apostle Paul, and he's like, I, I just long to be with you, to see you face to face. The only way we're really going to have this type of ministry with others is if we get with them. We spend time with each other. We linger together. Now, sometimes the reason this is a struggle for us to spread the fragrance of Christ is because we understand that this will smell like death to some people. Like some will smell Christ on us and they will reject us for it. And that's a painful, it's a painful thing. Someone close to you, someone you love, they smell Christ on you and therefore they reject you because of it. That's painful. And not only that, that doesn't feel successful, does it? That feels like failure. To be rejected because of Christ does not feel successful. It feels like failure. But think about the cross. Jesus was rejected, yet he's the one who marches into the city as the victorious king. So your life, your message may be rejected, but when measured by the cross, it doesn't mean you failed. You don't know that that rejection may one day lead to their resurrection. And it's fear of rejection that can lead us to alter the message of the cross. And say, like, man, I need to make this a little more appetizing. 
And this is what Paul warns us about in verse 17. He says, we do not market the word of God for profit like so many. On the contrary, we speak with sincerity in Christ as from God and before God. We are heralds of the king. We are not hustlers of junk. It's not our job to make the gospel pretty. It's not our job to minimize the offense of calling sin, sin. We don't need to market, have a marketing meeting so that we can come up with new labels so evil becomes good and good becomes evil. Like the aroma of Christ does not need our human strategies. Here's what Paul says. Here's, here's Paul's strategy. You ready for it? He's like, we speak and we live honestly and openly. We, we know that we represent the king. He's the one who reviews it. So there's no temptation to change our message because he's the one who gave it to us and he's the one, he's the one observing us and it's in his presence that we do this. Last time I bought a car, after we agreed on the price, the, the, I said I wanted to finance it and the salesman brought the details to me and I remember looking at it and just saying like, no, that's, 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 that's too expensive. So he took the piece of paper and he walked into the mysterious back room talked with some people or something for a little while, maybe played on his phone, I'm not sure. Came back out, handed me another piece of paper, looked at him like, no, that's, that's still too much. So he left again with a piece of paper. And while he was gone this time, I pulled up my phone and I looked for a few things. When he came out, I said, hey, I'd like the 0% offered on the manufacturer's website. And he said, okay. And then he, then he looked at me and he somewhat apologetically said, I'm sorry about those other numbers. I hate it when they make me do that. If we measure the success of our ministry the same way the manager measures the success of his dealership, then we will do all manner of underhanded things to get people to accept what we're selling. But if we do that, we undermine the beauty of the gospel. We cheapen grace. Listen, we're not selling anything. We're announcing the victory of Jesus over sin and death. We're inviting people to live with him forever to join in the victory march so we don't apologize for the gospel. It's a message that drips with grace and glory. It's about the goodness and beauty of Jesus Christ. Yes, to those who reject it, it smells like death, but even to them, it's an invitation to life. I want to wrap up this morning with a question, but it's not my question. It's a question asked in our text. Verse 16 says, who is adequate for these things? If the two outcomes of our life and ministry is life and death, then who is strong enough? Who is capable enough? Who is consistent enough to bear this responsibility? Now, the answer really comes in the next few chapters. But I think we already know the answer because the cross teaches us that we're not. We're not strong enough. We're not smart enough. But in Christ, we are. We're not, but in Christ, we are. That's what the cross teaches us. So if this church is dependent upon my power, my ability, my intellect, my background, my effectiveness, it's going to fail. If your ministry to your neighbor rises completely on your willpower and effort, it's not going to happen. If the outcome of your children's faith is dependent entirely on your ability and consistency, then there is no hope. But what does the cross teach us? Future outcomes aren't contingent on strength or willpower in us. Right? We don't lead the triumphant parade. Jesus does. It was Jesus who marched through death and hell and came out victorious on the other side. So that means our success is not dependent upon our strength. It's 
It's dependent entirely on his. Brothers and sisters, as we look to our future as a church, we have a very simple strategy. You ready? We follow the path of the cross. Death to life, success through weakness. The cross, not the expectations of our culture, not the expectations of our community, not even our own expectations. The cross charts the way forward. It's both our GPS guiding us and it's our engine empowering us. And so the future success of this church cannot be measured by people in the seats, by dollars in the plate, by footage in a building. Those human metrics cannot measure success. Success, future success is measured by the cross. Do we take sin and forgiveness seriously? Do we value people or do we value numbers? Are we smooth religious hustlers or are we faithful gospel heralds? Right? Will we define everything, including success, by the cross? Pray with me. Father, we need your help. This is countercultural for us. It's success in everything, like our, our tendency is to measure it the same way. It's the way that we've just sort of grown up in a culture measuring it. And, and I know it's a little different based upon the culture that we grew up in, but it shares similarities. It's about attaining power, attaining influence, being thought of as effective, always getting bigger, always growing, always moving forward, all, always doing these things that signal, hey, look at us, we got it together, we're successful. Father, you have not called us to that. Not to measure our lives by that. Lord, you measured, you called us to measure success a much different way. To recognize that life comes through death, that strength comes by admitting and embracing our weakness, by taking both sin and forgiveness seriously, by valuing real, living, breathing humans being in their presence more than we value numerical success. So Lord, we need your help to do that. I pray that you will help us by your grace and through your strength. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Community Church in Fuquay, Verena, North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more sermons, we invite you to visit us online at RedeemerNC.org.